recently reigned in my keratin, Mike. And I'm the Porkopolis princess, Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station <laughs> to talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom Adamalia. What's up, Mike? It's so nice to be back together again. I know that it is really good. It's like just fluttery feeling seeing your great face. I'm in a whole different part of the clubhouse today. We're in the childhood bedroom outpost of the Dalmatian station. (laughs) I'm literally surrounded by like 15 stuffed animals just from where I'm sitting. I've got my animal fact file next to me on the bed, which we will outline in an upcoming segment. That's true. That's true. We've talked about that. I've seen the photos. I was like, that's the one that I got to with the giraffe on the cover. Yes. <laughs> I was so excited that it didn't get thrown away. And there's like a bright blue sequin dance costume hat holding up my phone right now. Good times. We are doing a bit of an audio experience. We had sent you with a uh, old interface that just doesn't seem to be cutting the mustard anymore no and i also am recording with a microphone a very nice microphone that i just got it looks beautiful like even the stand looks super high tech it's pretty fancy looking but i am only using it this week and then i'm sending it away for a couple months for somebody else to use but it's for a different project that i'm working on so i i just had to try the microphone before I send it away. This microphone I've wanted for a long time. I'm not going to say what it is because they're not paying me. So I'm not going to give them the free advertisement. Hell no. I'm very excited. It looks great next to you. You look very accomplished over there. Thank you. I feel very accomplished. Awesome. Well, I came across some like hilarious, uh, weird animal information on this, uh, This is like apropos of nothing, but I love this art history programming that this guy, he's like an English or British art historian. His name's Voldemort, like Janyashek or something. Ah. He does all of these series, and I was watching one called Rococo Before Bedtime. Oh. So Rococo referring to like, you know, mid-18th century art. They say it's like the final stage or like the final gasp of the Baroque if you will. But anyway, so they were going through this whole segment about this like obsession with exotic animals in the Rococo, often animals from what would have been labeled the Orient. So it it ties into a lot of the fascination with like Turkish themes and, you know, this goes through music and everything like Rondo, Alaturka, whatever. Right. Anyhow, so they were showing one example of another of porcelain figurines, paintings, big, small, large of rhinoceroses. So people of the Rococo loved rhinoceroses. And then they go on to say that not only did they love rhinoceroses, but every rhinoceros that you see in these Rococo paintings or porcelain figures 
was always the same rhino. And her name was Clara. And she like went on a grand tour of 18th century Europe and was just like painted by all of these Rococo artists. You could say that Clara's the most painted rhinoceros in all of human history, perhaps. Yes. I I feel safe saying that. You, yeah, it just, I've been telling literally everybody I can find lately that I learned about this. And it, it's just so funny. Like, she was living, I think, they got her in India. She's an Indian rhinoceros. And then she just literally toured from Italy up through France, Bavaria, into, like, what was then Prussia, because Rococo was a very, you know, cosmopolitan art form all over Europe. And so people were just crazy for her. And they would, like, bring her on these trips. And she would just kind of, like, hang out in these palatial mansions and just kind of, like, have free reign. So funny. I mean, I guess I have a lot of questions. My first is that I'd like to re- confirm the Rococo period. You said it was the 18th century? Yeah, so like mid-18th century. I think of Mozart as being like of that time. He's a little, yeah, a little later. So his childhood would have been in the like the height of Rococo. Ah, when he was being kind of, he was the sort of Clara of music. Yes! You know, being yes. taken around all of Europe and put on display. Exactly. That's actually such a great perfect analogy because apparently like travel was such a big deal in these days and so everyone was doing it including big creatures and little mozart yeah charismatic megafauna trampling all over the palaces of europe how fun i know it was super cool so if anybody's interested in watching it it's called rococo before bedtime and you can find him on amazon prime i mean i don't really know what else to say I was just so, I was like so bottled up with this. I couldn't wait to share it because it was so funny. Yeah, that's really nice. Go Clara. Meredith, I don't even know what's been happening in my animal life right now. Like I go on walks, I guess, and I walk under scaffolding and I look cautiously up at the pigeons that are just waiting to poop on me and I just do my best to avoid them. My war against arthropods is just kind of coming and going and waxing and waning. And there's just a bit of an ebb and flow. And I think much like the war on drugs, it's an unwinnable war. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to kind of work through that set of emotions. Ugh, I'm sorry. It's okay. There are worse problems for a person to have. That's true. And it's it's manageable. It's really not bad, but it's just like, ugh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should probably really just, I think we should get into it. This is going to be definitely a, we're definitely stretching our legs on on this. We're getting back into the groove. Yeah. I think maybe the quickest way to do that is to just kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. You know, I really love that idea. Ready? Okay. Taxonomy you. Taxonomy we. Taxonomy who. Taxonomy. Kingdom. In Amelia. Meredith's my name and creatures are my game. Phylum. Arthropoda. Swap that spine for an exoskeleton. Class. Chylopoda. Lots and lots of legs. Order. Scutigeromorpha, but not quite a hundred legs. Family. Scutigeridae. These bugs love your parents' basement. Genus. Scutigera. Pseudo-faceted eyes. Species. Scutigera coleoptrata. The most domestic of them all. It's the house centipede. We are literally talking about house bugs. And yes. you've been just waiting to tell me about the house centipede and 
I'm thrilled. These are the little ones that are like an inch or an inch and a half. Yes, but they look very weird because of their like long, freaky legs. Do you know them? I think I've like seen them in bathrooms. Yes. Oh, yes. You're just setting this up so perfectly. Like they drive house cats bonkers. Kitties go nuts for these things. And I, the reason I thought to do this is because I saw one, of course, on like on my ceiling. There's probably one in this room right now, but there are like centipedes known for hanging out in your house. And they're so disgusting looking. I've been terrified of them for my whole life because growing up with a basement, they love like cool, dark, damp areas. And so they'd always be all over the basement, but they do love a bathroom as well. Yeah. So I just grew up being like super freaked out by them. And then always like having cats, like the cats would just like scan the perimeters of the rooms, like looking for these things. Yeah. I would imagine that the cats would be frustrated by this bug's ability to just kind of climb up a wall. Yes. In a way that cats can sometimes almost do, but not fully. Right. Like they can leap, but when they see them up on the ceiling, they know it's like something that they want to eradicate, but they can't quite get to it. So often you'll hear the cats do that weird like (laughs) sound. When there's like something that they want to grab, but they can't, they can't quite get to it. But anyway, so just being in these environs of my childhood home, I couldn't help but think about the house centipede. And oftentimes what I like to do with these is find something that has previously really freaked me out and then learn about it as a means of getting past that. (laughs) That's nice. So, so have you gotten past your centipede fear? No. I mean, they're still really creepy looking. So I'll go into like a little bit of what they look like, the morphology, if you will, because I was even like looking through all the pictures online and I just had like this grimace on my face because they just are so disgusting looking to me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. I don't really like bugs. Yeah. You don't have to apologize to me for finding a centipede ugly. I'll just have to apologize to the centipedes. Centipede and centipede enthusiasts. Yes. And you know they're out there. So as far as size, you're totally correct. So they're like, their bodies are about an inch to 1.38 inches. But they've got these really long antenna. And then also these legs that kind of start off a little shorter. And then they get like gradually longer as you get to the back of the body. So the really long legs in the back actually kind of look like the antenna in the front. So it's this idea of like auto mimicry. So it's hard to tell the front from the back and the back from the front. Huh. But you can kind of tell because the shorter legs are at the front end. And for obvious reasons, that would be useful, I think, with predators in that they don't really know which side is the head. So they don't really know which part of the body to strike for. And then so in addition to that, this always for some reason freaked me out is they've got on all of these legs, they're kind of striped. And then they also have like three stripes down their back. So I don't know why that grosses me out so much. It's like, you're not a tabby cat, put it. Right. You're a centipede, not a tabby cat. Yeah. It is kind of weird for an insect to be striped, I guess. Conceptually, you don't think of them as being striped. But then if you actually stop and really think about insects, like they're all striped, you know, like they all have coloration patterns and everything. And like, right. Some are iridescent even, you know, exactly. there's like some beetles that are just like 
gorgeous blue iridescence, you know? And some of them have that, like, photoluminescence. Right. And, like, butterflies have, you know, their wings and everything. So, like, insects are decidedly not drab. I would say they're very fashion forward. Uh, Agreed. And I mean, these, like, the symmetry and kind of the weird if ombre was applied to leg length, these guys have, like, ombre legs. (laughs) Okay. I guess. Just in the sense of, like, because ombre is, like, a gradual fading of one color into another, you know? So applied to, like, leg size, it's just, like, each leg gets a little bit longer. And so each of each pair of legs is on a different segment of the body. So every time these guys molt from the time of their youth, they grow a new segment. Kind of like, remember the rattlesnake tail? Like every time they would shed their skin, it would add a new part to the rattle. I do remember that. Yeah, so they'll grow up to 15 segments, so 15 pairs of legs. So it's quite the misnomer to say that centipede, meaning 100-footed, they don't have 100 feet. Right. The same way that a millipede does not have 1,000 feet. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, that's what they look like. But you will love to hear this, Mike. So these might be your friends. So they're very predatory to other house bugs. So they like to eat cockroaches. Oh. Silverfish, which are another... I just was looking at a silverfish on the wall last night. That's another common house bug. Yeah. Very small. Just like how starfish are echinoderms, not fishes. Yes. Silverfish are insects, not fishes. Exactly. They just are called silverfish because they have kind of like a fish-shaped body. Kind of tapers off towards the end. Right. The house centipedes like cockroaches, silverfish, ants, spiders, and bed bugs. So it seems that they're like going after some house bugs that many people don't like. And this is interesting. It was said they they catch their prey either by like jumping on it. So if these things weren't terrifying enough just to look at, I'd, I've never seen one jump. That's disgusting. Yeah, I don't like that one bit. Yeah, I don't like that's terrifying to me because they're I already know that they're like super fast. Like they can move up to like a foot over a foot per second, which is crazy. So they're super fast. But then you add on this other level of them being able to jump. It's like, oh, disgusting. I can't. Yeah, I'm. Continue to not be into it. Yeah. But they also apparently, I don't know what this means, but they lasso their prey with their legs as well. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Throw a cowboy hat on that house centipede. Call him Larry. And they also use their legs to beat their prey. So this is all very disturbing. Until you get to the next part. So they also have these things called forciples. So they're like essentially a modified first pair of legs. So it's like these little legs that are just right under the mandibles, so the jaws. So, But these aren't a true mandible because they're legs. And they also have venom in them. So they're able to, like, sting the prey and hold it in their forcibles. But then they can also hold more prey in their mandibles. So they're able to, like, double-fist bugs, essentially. Does that make sense? Cool. Yeah, it does. They can just kind of nonstop be shoveling bugs into their face. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, so, I do like these guys. That's pretty cool. It's just so it's just I I was surprised that um they didn't deliver the venom through I guess a a thing in their mouth. It's like essentially the venom comes through their modified first legs, which is weird to me. Hmm. Does that make sense? It's it's kind of hard to wrap your I mean, mandible around, but... <laughs> well, I 
I've been really into this idea of modified limbs recently. Yeah. <laughs> where they've adapted for a specific purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's a limb that generally functions as a limb, but it's modified a little bit so that it does a specific function. Or it's been modified so much it's not even really serving a function anymore or its original function. In this case, it's kind of serving both like limb and mouth functions. I don't know. Forcibles. Get into it. Yeah, I am. And then I already mentioned this a little bit, but like Habitat. Um, so on the in the outside world, they we know they love the house, hence the name House Centipede. But outside, they like cool, damp areas. They live under rocks or in compost piles. Kind of like our Shelly Day friends or turtles. Um, and then you can find them pretty much any part of the house. You can find them in the bathroom. I remember I was getting ready for homecoming, I think, or some dance my freshman year of high school and like taking a shower beforehand. And one house centipede like came up out of the drain and obviously made quite the imprint on my mind that I can still remember that today. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) So gross. The place where you're supposed to get clean, filthy creatures. But they live on every continent, or they've been found on every continent except Antarctica. And they kind of have a similar eye structure. It's not completely like the mantis shrimp. You know, the mantis shrimp had that, like, crazy eye structure, that compound eye structure where they were able to see spectrums of light that we can't even conceive of. So these guys are actually, they're sensitive to daylight and ultraviolet light with their pseudo-faceted eyes, which means they're just kind of, like, we just have our one eye, but insect eyes are kind of composed of like all these tiny little eyes that make them very sensitive to light and changes in light. And again, so we're not really sure like why they or why they use the skill or the adaptation of being able to see ultraviolet light. I don't really know what the uh, house centipede does with that, but apparently they can do it. That's incredible. Yeah. So that's like all I have about them, but it was kind of fun learning a little bit about them, particularly their forcibles. Yeah. I think of them as being a sort of bathroom insect. Or a basement. Or a basement, sure. Yeah. I was surprised to find out that they grow a new segment as if it's like a growth ring. Yeah. For some reason, I have in my head that like arthropods are a set number of body segments or something like that. So I'm curious about that. Yeah, same, same. But I don't know. I guess I've mostly been into crustaceans lately and that's its own (laughs) subculture really crab culture yeah (laughs) that was thrilling though meredith thank you yeah so next time you see one crawl out of your drain you can um you could say hey i know you hey centipede friend you're the utagera coleoptrata well i'll be sure to do that meredith yeah all right break time definitely (laughs) owie what's wrong fergie Oh, Ricks, my teeth hurt. Oh, that's a bummer. You said it. I don't even use my teeth to eat delicious ants and termites. All they do is get infected, and normal dentists never seem to know what to do with our complicated aardvark tooth structure. Oh, Fergie, you clearly haven't heard that the Tubula Dentata Center for Afrotherian Orthodontia has just opened on the corner of Main Street and Central Ave. The Tubula Dentata Center for Afrotherian Orthodontia? That sounds like it could be helpful to me. It is! 
TTCAO is on the cutting edge of tooth tech and can address your needs, whether you're a sea cow or an elephant shrew. Phew. Exactly. Well, Ricks, TTCAO is a dream come true. I'm going to head in today. Use my referral code, Ants Rule, so we both get $10 off our next procedure. Will do. Here we are in another episode or another segment of Animal Magazines. And this one's a little bit different because it's not really a magazine per se, but it's like a periodical and it came in the mail. And I think, Mike, you said you had one of these as well. I did. Yeah. When you sent me that photo of it with the giraffe on the cover, I was like, oh, yep. No, her. I remember that. Yeah. So this is called the Wildlife Fact File. And you might remember it from commercials in the 90s. So I think in the little research I could do on this, they I think this started as early as 91. Wow. Yeah. And so how it would work is I think it was every month you would get a subscription and every month you would receive like a packet of 12 cards and they would either fall into one of the following groups, okay? So they would come from mammals, birds, reptiles and amphibians, fish, insects and spiders, primitive animals, extinct animals, animal behavior, North American habitats, world habitats, and conservation. That's a lot of different subjects. It is. And I found it weird that they broke them up like mammals, birds, but then reptiles and amphibians get grouped together. Fish get their own and then insects and spiders. But there's no like, like where would octopuses go in that, you know? Oh, that's a good question. Because they're not fish and they're not insects and spiders and they're not primitive animals, right? Or would they be? I would think that they would include like echinoderms, et cetera, in with fish and make fish more of a catch-all for aquatic life. Oh, well, you know what? I'm looking through here now. Guess what? Primitive animals, the cards I have, the Portuguese man-o'-war, the fiddler crab, the octopus, and the oyster. (laughs) So they're under primitive animals. Huh. That's so weird. I would not... I don't know. I don't agree with this categorization, but... Anyhow, so yeah, you would get like a pack of... What's it saying? Like a pack of 12 cards, and they would come from one of these groupings. I think mammals are most fully represented in my personal fact file. But then they'd also send you this binder and little like dividers and everything too. I would look very much forward to getting these in the mail as a child. Yeah, myself also. And it looks like there were a total of 1,188 pages that one could get. And I'm not sure how many I have, but man, that's a lot. Well, I'm looking right now on the internet and I see that there's a complete seven volume set that is not available. It's sold, but it has over a thousand pages. Right. Yeah. I think it's like 1,000. Yeah. 1,188. That's so many. And then I guess that fills seven binders. It seems to be a seven volume set. Yes. Oh, that's crazy. I only had one. 
and I don't have it filled up. Right. They must have tracked that and known when you needed a second binder and then they would send it, you know? I don't know. Because there had to have been a very prescribed process for sending these things out, you know? So, like, each card is numbered. So there's, like, the African elephant is card number one. Gorilla is card number two. Blah, blah, blah. And then it starts, like, the numbers start over when you get into each category. So, like, the golden eagle is card number one for birds. But anyway, so, like, I'll have consecutive numbers up to a point. Like, I'll be, it'll be, like, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then I'll miss, like, eight and nine, and then it'll pick back up. So it must have been that I just never got the packets that came with eight and nine, for instance. Sure. But man, I really wish I had something like this now. <laughs> I would look yeah. forward to it so much. It is really fun. It's like a, it's just a curated little fact adventure of charismatic megafauna, you know? It really is. You don't come across a lot of like weird animals, though I did just open upon the old world badger. <laughs> oh. Love her. Oh, and there's the hippopotamus, a walrus, the red kangaroo, warthog. I love warthogs. What's not to love? They're so cute. And then there's a picture of them mating. Fun. Okay. Gross. So yeah, that's the wildlife fact file. Um, I don't know what else to say about it other than the fact that I wish I had the complete set, but alas. Yeah, maybe one day. One day, maybe somebody will buy me the full set. <laughs> a girl can dream. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, let's t- let's take a break. Sure. Texana, you. Texana, we. Taxana who? Taxana me. Kingdom. And Amelia, if this is news, I'm scared for you. Philo. Mollusca, the mollusk journey concludes. Class. Cephalopoda, squids, octopuses, nautiluses. Order. Octopoda, soft bodies, eight limbs. Family. Octopodi day, the majority of known species. Genus. Octopus, its largest genus. Species. Vulgaris, the common octopus. It's the most studied of all octopus species. Oh, man. We are hitting like two of my creepiest animals today. Yeah, lots of legs. Okay, I'm going to like take a few deep breaths, prepare myself for the octopus journey. Yeah. I'm sure I've mentioned this on here, but octopus have always like really freaked me out. I respect them. And I think it's part of why they freak me out, but they really, because they're so smart, but boy, do they freak me out. (laughs) Well, Meredith, we're going to divide this octopus presentation into eight parts. Okay. So if keeping track of those helps you cope with your octopus anxiety. It will. Then I think you'll be really great. Okay. The first leg of our octopus presentation is a quick mollusk recap. We have gastropods, which are snails, which Meredith has presented. Then Mm -hmm. we have bivalves, like clams, cockles, mussels, etc., two shells. Scaphopoda, which are the boat foot ones. Those are the tusk shells that dig into the benthic zone, like the substrate of the ocean with their boat-shaped foot. 
the aplacophora, which are kind of the shellless scaphopods, essentially, they're just little aplacophora. They have no plaque. They're bearing no plate. They are not a plate bearer. Mm-hmm. We have the monoplacophorans, one shell, and then we have the polyplacophorans, the chitons, those little things that kind of look like they might be arthropods. Right. Now we're talking cephalopods. We've made it. The second leg of our octopus journey is a quick anatomy overview. So you know how they have those kind of eight legs and then there's the beak mouth region like kind of at the center of the legs? Do you know about this? Yeah, I do. Oh, gosh. That's like the mouth. So So that's like the front of the octopus. And then the bulbous thing in the back, that's like the, that looks like the head almost, like a floppy head. Yeah, yeah. That's called the visceral hump, which is where most of the (laughs) vital organs are. And Uh that's the mantle that we know and love from our other molluscan anatomy. Okay, great. It's like fused to the back of the head. Like the mouth and the central beak head area is like there. And then there's like eye spots kind of like on the other side, you know, kind of up here on their sort of like swoopy visceral mass thing. Yeah. Wait, so is the beak, is that like kind of under the skirt? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. You would think under the skirt is the front of the animal. For all intents and purposes, because that's where, like, all of its beak and mouth and everything is. Gosh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a flippy flip. Actually, ceph- I should have said this earlier, but cephalopod, because we have the scaphopod with the boat feet. So cephalopod means head foot. So it's their head and their feet are in the same place. Like, the mouth and the feet are in the same area. Hence why the mouth is so-called up the skirt. Yeah, for sure. Okay, gotcha. They have eight legs. We all know that. Octopus, eight feet. They kind of like to scurry across the seafloor with two legs, and then they use their other six legs to hunt for food. So some people say that an octopus actually has six arms and two legs. The obvious question that would come from this, like, where would an octopus put on his snow boots and where would he wear his gloves? snow gloves. Well, how many of each does he need? I think he needs two snow boots and six gloves. Yeah. And is it always the same two feet that they'll use to uh, move? Or can they swap it up? Well, it distinguishes them as being rear feet. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And then on their arms, they have these adhesive suckers. And they use contractions of muscle to control the suckers to, like, create and release from things oh gosh oh we're on to the third leg of our octopus adventure the breath heart digestion leg where we talk about how they breathe they have gills Mm -hmm. water's pulled into the mantle cavity through an aperture and then it passes over the gills and is expelled through a siphon so that's similar to a lot of the other mollusks that we've encountered where it's a one-way path Mm -hmm. of water through the creature that they actually like force the water through to get oxygen. Mm-hmm. They have three hearts. They have a main two-chambered heart, which sends oxygenated blood to the body. And then they have two smaller bronchial hearts, which are next to each set of the gills. So that like pumps the blood, the oxygenated blood, you know, from the gill area to the heart. And then the heart distributes it around the body. Okay. Okay. They also have large blood sinuses around the eyes and the gut 
and they function as reserves in times of physiological stress. We talked about blood sinuses with our tusk shell friends, just little blood storage areas, and mollusks have varying levels of complexity with their blood sinus or heart situation. Mm-hmm. And they like to hunt at dusk. They eat like crabs, crayfish, bivalves, pretty much anything it catches, honestly. Yeah. And its beak will use to break up the shells of the shelled mollusks. So it's a very sturdy beak. Oh, gross. <laughs> it's so funny how like on a bird, it bothers me not at all, but slap it on the undercarriage of a cephalopod and I have nightmares. The fourth leg of our octopus adventure concerns the nervous system. They have nine brains. So there's one in their dome and then one in each leg. <gasps> what? Yeah, so the legs can kind of think for themselves a little bit, but the overarching brain is managing them, sort of, but it's all one organism. Oh, whoa. Yeah, and this is not concerning octopuses, but it's important to discuss cephalopod neurons in general, in particular the giant squid axon, which is uh, the axon that controls the water jet propulsion system in a squid. And so action potentials, which are like, you know, nervous system, like boopy boops. Okay. They travel faster in a larger axon than in a smaller one. And squids have evolved this giant axon to improve the speed of their escape response. Their nervous system has developed a larger axon to connect these two systems. And it's optimized for electrical efficiency. Okay. So it's very studied. (sighs) It's very large in diameter. It's very large in diameter and it's unmyelinated, which decreases the conduction velocity substantially. So it's been studied for neuroscience stuff. Okay. And that's the giant squid? Yes. You know, when intellectuals are like, oh, well, the giant squid in neuroscience and Proust, it's, they're talking about this. Oh, <laughs> Proust? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, wait, so what is the really, like... How do squid and octopi or octopuses relate to one another? Well, they're both cephalopods. Okay, gotcha. So they're in the same class of mollusks. Gotcha. Do you know would they like break off at the level of order then? So octopuses and squid are in the same subclass. Okay. Coleidea. And then there's a further subclass division between squids, the decapodiforms, probably because they've been decapitated. It looks like they have no heads. Uh-huh. And then the octopodiforms. So there's a series of subclasses. Okay. The fifth leg of our octopus adventure is habitat. The common octopus is cosmopolitan. It Eastern Atlantic, Mediterranean Sea, southern coast of England to at least Senegal and Africa and also the Western Atlantic, which is funny because that's not really global. That's more of a geographical region around white people, which is probably why it's also called the like common octopus. Yeah. It did say that it was also in the Western Atlantic, but I think that in general, cephalopods are cosmopolitan and that I'm not quite sure about this specific species, but this species is serving the Great Mollusk Council, <laughs> you know, in a different way, I guess. The sixth leg of our octopus adventure Concerns their reproduction. Okay. Not your favorite. You know, normally I do love this, but the thought of making more of them 
is just anathema to me. It's definitely disconcerting. <laughs> yeah. So there are two sexes. Reproduction's only been studied in a few species of octopuses. In the example of the giant Pacific octopus, courtship is accompanied by changes in skin texture and color. And the male might cling to the top or the side of the female, or he might be positioned beside her. But getting back to our specialized limbs, one of the arms of the male is specialized. It's called a hectocotylus, and it's used to transfer spermatophores, which are packets of sperm, from the terminal organ of the reproductive tract of the male, the cephalopod penis, <laughs> into the female's mantle cavity. Wait, so it comes out of one of the legs? No. The terminal organ at the reproductive tract, I'm not sure exactly where that's located, but not. I don't believe it's on a leg. But it uses one of its leg, usually the third right arm, and it has a spoon-shaped depression and modified suckers near the tips to help it scoop sperm from its reproductive tract and then deposit that inside the mantle cavity of the female. Ew. (laughs) It scoops it. Yeah, with its third right arm, normally, in most benthic species. I hate this. There's some speculation that males may first use their hectocotylus to remove any spermatophore or sperm that's already present in the female. And he has to deposit it in the correct location for each species because each species has like a little bit, you know. A little different mechanism. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even going to read the rest of it. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. About 40 days after mating, the female giant Pacific octopus attaches strings of small fertilized eggs, like 10,000 to 70,000 in total, to rocks or under an overhang. And she'll hang out for about five months until they hatch to make sure that they're safe. Okay. But it can take as much as 10 months for the eggs to hatch, especially in cold waters like in Alaska. Babies are planktonic for weeks to months. And then they really don't live very long. Some species only live for six months. The giant Pacific octopus is maybe like five years. And generally, they die a few months after mating, the males, and the females die shortly after the eggs hatch. So they have these very short lifespans that are dependent on their reproductive cycle. Oh, wow. The seventh leg of our octopus adventure (laughs) They have really cool, clever abilities. You know, they can camouflage. They're smart. They're crafty. There's all these stories of them escaping from aquariums and zoos. And you see, like, fishing boats in Alaska. And all of a sudden, there's an octopus on the deck. And you see it, like, crawl out of a hole in the side of the boat that's way smaller than it should be able to fit through. Yes. Like, they're scrappy. They're really kind of tricky, smart, intelligent little buggers they really are i mean i've heard more than one person and i might be in this camp myself say that they do fear the inevitable octopus takeover one day i mean i wouldn't be shocked you know they can like open jars and climb in and out of jars and they learn things and remember them you can watch all this content on youtube about like octopus stuff i guess about octopods yeah i'll pass on that The eighth leg of our octopus journey 
is a list of super fun possible octopus names and an open <gasps> forum for a discussion of cephalopods. Okay, I do like this part. We got Inky. <laughs> yes, Inky. Bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> Sir Inksalot. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Big Floppy Sea Spider. <laughs> and Octavius. Octavius? Yep. I like that. So at this point, we're now in the open forum for the discussion of cephalopods. Do you have any cephalopod trauma oh my goodness. you need to address? Well, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with the cephalopod trauma, but... um. Did I say, did you see anywhere, like, how many species of octopuses there are in the world? I know that there's over 100 in the largest genus of octopuses, which is the genus octopus. I also know that there's a total of 900 cephalopod species. Wow. That's 900. Too many. (laughs) And that it appears that there's about 300 species of octopuses. Okay. So octopuses make up about a third of known extant cephalopod species. Got it. That's a lot. I mean, thank you. I know that was tough for you. Hey, you know, but again, like I said, with the house centipede, it's good for me to confront these scary animals for me. And I do feel some compunction. Like, I feel very guilty, like, being so poo-pooey on the puss but they just i don't know what it is it's like this weird primitive fear within me that just is very freaked out by them yeah i mean i feel that i think that there's a lot about them that's scary yeah particularly their intelligence and how they will one day take over yeah undoubtedly but they're nine brains Ugh. yeah well let's all put our suckers together for ourselves and one another and I guess maybe take a little break. Those are my suckers clapping. Hey, Penny! Hi, Clyde. Oh, no, Penny. Why the long face? Well, Clyde, I just don't know what to do about my stablemate, Bud. I think the spark has gone out of our relationship. Oh, my. What happened? You and Bud were always the hottest couple in the barn, the paragon of horse partner perfection. You may not know this, but all the other animals used to call you guys Pud. Get it? Like Penny and Bud put together? I get it, Clyde, but I think it's time you start crafting a new name for Bud and that slutty Appaloosa, Jasmine, from Farmer George's barn next door. Gloria Goose said she saw them running down to the creek together the other day. Hmm... Okay, I'll call them Jazz Bud, or maybe Bud Men. Clyde, you aren't helping. I feel like my heart has been ripped out and stampeded upon by one million bison, and you're on to the new nickname? (laughs) You're right, Penny. My apologies. That was very insensitive of me. But I do know a way I can help. What is that? Well, have you ever considered a horse divorce? It's the new service offered by Brand Clubby's very own legal team, Bovide, Anura, and Marmot. Oh, I've heard their commercials. They let the marmots carry the briefcases, right? Yes, exactly. That's how you know they are legit. And now they have a crack team of animal lawyers who specialize in the unique circumstances of horse divorce. Brand Clubby really does think of everything. 
Will they be able to assist in stable reassignment? I can hardly bear the thought of Bud right now, let alone share a stable with him every night, reeking of Jasmine's cheap Eau de Cheval perfume. Whoa, girl. That law firm of Bovide, Inura, and Marmot would never let you suffer like that. Not only will they secure you a new, better stable, they will ensure that you get extra carrots, apples, and the entire back catalog of Horse Hunks magazine, just to ease you through this difficult time. Wow, it really is nice to know that someone has my back right now, rather than ride my back. Can they also guarantee my alimony payments? You mean alipony payments, Penny. And yes, Bovidae, Anura, and Marmot has an excellent track record in making sure you get the settlement that you deserve. Well, consider me another satisfied brand clubby customer. I give all of their products and services four hoofs up. Yay! <laughs> Oh, what's that earthy? It's the feedback. Oh, oh, oh. It's the feedback, Meredith. You've had it. <laughs> You've had it with that shtick. <laughs> no, I love that shtick. But it's just, I know the smell. By now, it's like, it makes sense, you know. Agreed. We've covered so much animal info. Like, what are we supposed to do now but answer some questions from our loyal fans? And how? Stephanie from Utah asks... Where do birdies come from? Oh, like birdies? Like all birds? I think it's kind of like where do babies come from, but it's about birdies. So I think like baby birds. I guess <gasps> I feel like maybe Stephanie's wondering like if storks deliver babies. <gasps> what? Okay. Yeah. If bir- if a kind of bird delivers a baby, what delivers a birdie? Oh, well, yeah. I think that's that's how I would interpret that question, Meredith. Oh, Myself. Okay. That's fun. Maybe there's an inference that I'm making there. Well, I think we have to make one because otherwise I could just direct her to like a bird reproduction page on Wikipedia. Right. I think your take on it is much more whimsical and fun. Oh, okay. So if birds deliver humans, maybe a reptile would deliver a bird. I like that. So what if turtles carry bird eggs on their backs and deliver them to the nests? Or do we need... mm, That seems clunky. Yeah, you'd need something more nimble than a turtle. Yeah, turtles are limited. Maybe it's an (gasps) anurin. An anurin! A fleet-footed (gasps) anurin. Yeah, just a friendly little froggy friend. Yeah, I like that. Tree frogs deliver the birdies to the nests. That's our fish position. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding-a-dong, ding. So, Billy from Bolivia gives us a mate to pair feet upon. So, we've got the old world badger, got the murder hornet, and a black lab. Definitely mating with the old world badger. I agree. It might get rough. It might You might come out with some scratches, but... That's okay. Definitely pairing with the Black Labrador, no question. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. And definitely eating the murder hornet, because only after something else has killed it for me. Right. And it's been cooked. Exactly. Again, like I say with, like, all creatures that I end up wanting to eat like this, put it in a taco. Fry it up. Throw it in a taco. It's fine. So 
Wild Night with the Old World Badger. Mm-hmm. Happy Life with the Black Labrador. Delicious Taco with the Murder Hornet. Ding, ding, ding. I love it. Ding, ding, ding. No questions there. Well, Peter from Tonawanda has a question, and his question is, what's a donkey's favorite dessert? Eeyaw ice cream! I was thinking, like, maybe a parfait. Oh, that's fun. Which is, does include ice cream. Yeah, totally. Unless it's like a yogurt parfait, but I'm thinking of the kind that involves ice cream. Yeah, I much prefer those. Yogurt parfaits are for idiots. Affirmative. But ice cream parfaits are for donkeys. (laughs) Without a doubt. Okay, I love it. I don't think we need to deliberate much more on that. Yeah, this was a wildly efficient feedback, Meredith. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think good work. That is good Uh, work. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. Ding. Thanks for those questions. They're so great. Keep them coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. That's the absolute (laughs) truth. Bye. Bye. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.